We, as uh, administrators, used to believe that, uh, yeah, we'd accept students of color and they have to acclimate and uh, they have to conform to being at the college. What I think is more understood now and students are forcing uh, or compelling us to think differently is that, no, they don't have to conform uh, totally to us. We have to think differently about how the uh, college, the university, the art school is, is constructed to make it more adaptable or accepting of students of color. You are listening to Change Lab Conversations on Transformation and Creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, President of Art Center College of Design. Harry Elam and I only met casually before we sat down to record this episode of Change Lab. Interestingly, we had spent much of our early careers as two ships passing in the San Francisco Bay. Harry pursued his PhD in theater at UC Berkeley while I earned the same degree at Stanford. We then traded places and Harry became a theater professor at Stanford and I took a faculty position in Berkeley's dramatic art department. And our mirrored movements continue to this day. With Harry's recent appointment as president of Occidental College, we now both serve as college presidents for venerable institutions located just a few miles apart in Northeast Los Angeles. As you might imagine, our intersecting interests and career paths laid the groundwork for a productive and enriching conversation about the unique challenges and rewards involved in leading and uniting an academic community through growth and change. Most gratifying was the opportunity to explore Harry's extraordinary scholarship on revolutionary theatre movements. He's written several books and scores of journal articles on how theatre has become a vehicle for social change. And perhaps most exciting was the way in which his insights can serve as a model for progress within the very institutions we both lead. This past year, maybe more than any other, has called upon us both to draw on skills we developed in the theatre. We've had to improvise and lean into the unfolding drama, responding to challenges with yes and rather than no but. Harry, who assumed the presidency of Occidental College in February of 2020, has risen to the challenges in his new role with particular grace and equanimity. Our conversation sheds light on the importance of communal spirit, not unlike that of a theater company, in forging the path ahead. But in the end, we are two theater guys connecting around our shared belief in the power of creativity and education, as well as in our conviction that, above all else, the show must go on. Please enjoy my conversation with Harry Elam. Harry, welcome and thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's really wonderful to welcome you to this community. I'm so excited about your presidency at Oxy, and it's uh, it's great to have a, a colleague like you here. Thank you. You know, I often talk about the fact that being a theater director is maybe the greatest preparation I can imagine to be a college president. And I've probably said that quite a lot through the years. And now finally I have someone else to reflect on that idea and wondered how that might resonate for you. Well, I've been saying the same thing. So it, re- it resonates deeply. Uh, and uh, if you think of the director as not an autocrat, but somebody who really has to make other people or help other people do their best work, that's to me behind being a president. And uh, with a play, the play has to go on. It's got a vision. It's got a, everybody working towards an end. That's what you want in a, a college or university as well. So that idea of working together as a team, that idea of having a shared vision, the idea of collaborating, the idea of working with people to get their best work, that's the theater. The other element of it that I reflect on sometimes as well is that at the most important moment in the theater between a spectator and an actor, nobody's thinking about the director. Mm-hmm. And I like to think that about the college president too, the most important moments of learning, of discovery, of thriving, in the college, nobody should be thinking about the president. I think that's right. I think I absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. want to get there. 
Let's learn a little bit about you and, and uh, a little bit about your story. I think it's such an interesting one. I think our listeners would love to um, love to hear it. But let's go back to your childhood, really, growing up in, in Boston, in a segregated Boston. And uh, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about that story, uh, who you were, who was Creative Harry, who was that man who has developed with such great curiosity in his professional life right now. Sure. Uh Throughout my life, uh, oh, it's always been important, uh, issues of theater, education, uh, leadership, and service. And that idea of service came through my parents. My father was the first black a lawyer and then became the first black chief justice of the Boston Municipal Court. My mother was a librarian in charge of the libraries for the school system of Boston. And each of them believed in their own way in terms of social justice. My mother in terms of making sure that the libraries and their books were reflective of the students, um, that the students of color should have books written by and about and look like people like them. Um, my father started an organization in Boston to keep uh, young black men in particular from appearing in his courts. So both of them had that sense of commitment and both of them believed in education. I started out school at a, the, the local public school and it was interesting that the work there, um, that I'd be done really fast and, and feel just there was no work, there was uh, no energy, there was no learning, and uh, just sitting there. And it was interesting, it was all black school with white teachers. So little did I know I was part of uh, de facto segregation or it's a segregation in Boston. Um, uh, and one day a, 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 a white kid came to the school um, and he got incredibly special treatment. And you needed a partner every day to partner with some kid. And I said, I want special treatment too. So I was his partner for the day. But the next day he was gone. And probably he, he, because of where he lived, he needed to be in that school. But because he was white, he wasn't going to be in that school. So mm. he was moved out. I was lucky in my experience, as, as I said, sitting there without any work, that the teacher, white teacher, said to my mother, you got to get him out of here. you got to send him to some place where he can learn. And I was lucky also and blessed that my parents had the resources to send me to private school. So from that point on, I and all my siblings went to private school. I ended up uh, um, going to a private day school uh, that it was an Episcopal school called the Advent School associated with the Advent Church, and then on to a all-boys uh, private school um, in Dedham, Massachusetts called Noble and Greeno, where I went from seventh to 12th grade. And uh, so that experience really shaped me. And so I, unlike so many other black kids in inner city Boston, I was unable, I mean, I was able to escape um, and, and have an education that uh, prepared me for all the things that would come later. And what about the theater itself? What ah, the theater. I for, yes, thank you for getting me back there. So um, as a kid growing up in Boston, we started a black youth drama group um, uh, that was associated with my all-boys uh, school, Nobles, um, and an all-girls school. And so we put on plays to raise scholarship monies. We called the organization The Family. And uh, interestingly, it was this was the late 60s, early 70s, um, and the plays that uh, we performed were plays that came out of the Black Revolutionary Theater Movement, which was happening at that time. And later, um, when I got to graduate school, that would be part of what I'd write my dissertation on, the plays that at that point, you know, we were performing. The family continued on into, as I went to college at Harvard and did theater there through the black cast, the black drama organization at Harvard, but also with, um, with the group, the family. And I mentioned going even further back, I mentioned that theater was always something of interest to me. Um, my mom, when I was a really little kid, used to keep a box of clothes big, big box, huge, filled with clothes, and I would dress up and play different parts. Um, one August, I dressed up as Santa Claus, which you know she thought was just amazing, and took me to the streets to uh, my grandmother's house, but I'm sure people looked at me on the street saying, what is wrong with this kid? Why is this is August, and he's <laughs> Santa Claus? But that, that sense of wanting to perform and uh, wanting to make 
uh, performances were an early thing and part of uh, my upbringing. And uh, luckily, my mom brought me to the theater. So she took me to plays. I remember going to see the Pulitzer Prize winning play, No Place to Be Somebody, back in 1969. And uh, that was one of the things that uh, I was lucky again to have parents who opened kids up to their ex- uh, different experiences. And uh, she believed in uh, the possibilities that were available or creating possibilities for all of us. Wow. And what about directing itself? When did you start getting in touch with that? So with the family, um, with the family, we first had a director, a man who had worked in the theater, whose daughter was at the the girls' school with the other women um, in the family. And uh, eventually he left and it fell upon us um, to direct. Uh, uh, and so I started directing the family productions. I uh, directed a play, a play called A Meadow for Willie by William Branch. The play was again to raise scholarship monies for the schools that we went to. And um, my father said that he could guarantee us a sold-out audience if we'd perform at inner city um, at this uh, Trotter School that had an auditorium that sat about 500, 600 people and said to him, sure, if you can do that, we'll perform it. And um, my father sent out summonses. Remember, he was a judge, so he sent out these mm. summonses to all his friends, calling for them to come and see the play. <laughs> and surely for a weekend, we had sold out audiences to see it. Wow. Uh, and uh, this was in the 70s. My brother was in the cast as well. Um, um, my brother would go on later to a career as a rapper. Right. I was going to ask you about him, too. I'm sure our listeners want to hear about that. So if you can thread in that story as well. It's pretty sure. He was, he, was, he's just, he was a talented performer, and I think that played into him being a rapper, and that certainly was evident in this play. And uh, interestingly, um, when I was leaving college and thought I was going to be a lawyer, at that time, like my father, but decided that the only thing that excited me about law was the drama of the courtroom, that I was going on to Berkeley to get a PhD. And the idea of being a scholar artist, of being a director, uh, was something that intrigued me. And I told this to my father, and uh, he told me that the one thing he wanted to be besides a, a, a lawyer or a judge was an actor. And then Mm. he showed me pictures of a production he had done. He ran for city council um, back in the 50s. He didn't win. Um, uh, But one of the ways he raised money for his campaign was to put on a play, a play that he directed and uh, that he created music for. And it was a pageant of uh, a history of uh, blacks in Boston. So that story went with um, uh, my brother... He's younger. He graduated from Morehouse College in uh, uh, Atlanta and was going to the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. And he dropped out to start this rap career. And I thought it was crazy. You know, the the idea of education, school, uh, degree seemed so much more important to me. But I was wrong. He needed to follow this dream. He followed it and became really successful at it, Um, known for jazz rap. He brought hip-hop and jazz together in a Spike Lee movie. It was the the theme song that played in for more better blues. And I would like to play a little tune I just composed not so long ago. Miss Miss Billie Holiday. But more than that, he did a series of albums called Jazzmatazz. And uh, it was interesting that uh, my friends, um, you know, started playing my brother's music. Or uh, when I became a professor at Stanford, um, he played Stanford, Dinklespiel Auditorium at Stanford. And it was interesting walking into the space and people saying, instead of as I walked in, you know, that's Professor Elam, it was like, that's the guru's brother. (laughs) (laughs) And so he went by the name Guru, Gifted Unlimited Rhymes Universal. Peace, yo, and welcome to Jazzmatazz an experimental fusion of hip-hop and live jazz. I'm your host, The Guru. That stands for Gifted Unlimited Rhymes Universal. Now, I've always thought of doing something like this, but I didn't want to do it unless it was going to be done right, know what I'm saying? Because hip-hop, rap music, it's real. It's musical, cultural expression based on reality. 
And at the same time, jazz is real and based on reality. So I want to let you know that it was indeed a blessing and of course a pleasure. That idea of following a dream, living your passion, believing in yourself as an artist, were things that I appreciated in my brother. He died at age 48 from multiple myeloma. Um, this was uh, in 2010, and I still hear from people uh, throughout the world who were touched by his music. And so um, that's something that certainly touches me. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And um, what an amazing family. What a, what, a, what a group. Just a quick follow-up question on your decision to go to Berkeley. I, uh, you were saying you liked the combination of the scholar-director piece of the academic work and the artistic work. And I'm wondering how that has woven its way throughout your career. And even if you think about it now as you're taking on the presidency of Oxy. Yeah, what what I found exciting to me was uh, the connection of being able to research into questions uh, that were informed by directing. So at that point, uh, in, when I was at Berkeley, it was looking at the idea of theater for social change. How could theater get people to think and potentially to act? And as I said, these were plays that uh, I started out with looking at black theater, and these were plays that um, I had some of them we had done as the family, some of them I had directed. And in a sense, what you're doing as a director, you're interpreting things for a more public, critical audience. Um, so you're interpreting the playwright's work for that. As a scholar, what I'm doing is interpreting the work and critically engaging the work for a scholarly audience. So um, the two of those together informed uh, the first book that I, I wrote about uh, Black and Chicano theater. The other thing that informed it in terms of Chicano theater was at Berkeley, I, I met a guy named Carlos Morton who was teaching a class in Chicano theater that at that point I didn't know much about. And he said, I need somebody to help direct it. And so I signed on and, and worked with him. And what I found in these plays of the um, around the Great Picker Strike um, in California and Cesar Chavez, there was a really similarities. And I wanted to see what was this genre of social protest theater and how did it work? How could you make plays effectively do that that I mentioned before, that getting people to act potentially. So that drove me to look comparatively and to develop that as the first of uh, my dissertation. And as I said, it became the first book. So Harry, part of the mission of Art Center in terms of what we talk about is how art and design influences change and how significant that is to the education that we offer. And you'll note too that the name of this podcast is Change Lab. We, we talk a lot about change. We want to explore change. We want to explore in particular social change. And I would love to invite you to talk a little bit about how you think about the theater specifically as an agent of change. Drawing on Black Revolutionary Theater, drawing on Chicano protest theater from your own research would be wonderful. But I wonder if you, you could talk about how change happens and what that process is about and how we can think about creative endeavors like that as making a difference in our world. Uh, thanks for that. I think that's a great question. And I love the name change. And I believe, simply put, that art has the capability of changing the world. And there's a reason why they put artists in jail or burn books or whatever around movements, because there is a power of art that can really have an impact. So what does that mean in terms of the theater? And what does it mean in terms of now? Well, one of the things it means in terms of the theater is that something dynamic is happening in that interaction that you mentioned before between actor uh, on stage and the audience. And uh, the context plays a role in that. Two of my favorite quotes, one is by Wulhae Shoyinka, the Nigerian writer and Nobel Prize winner. He said, true guerrilla theater happens when it's as dangerous for the audience to see a play as it is for the actors to perform it. Mm. So you can imagine a context where there's that energy that happened um, in the fields um, in and around the Great Picker Strike, where there were armed guards looking at the workers as the El Teatro Campesino performed in a flatbed truck. The interchange between audience and performance is, is really powerful. And it still happens in ways today, affected uh, by context, but really affected by um, actors working towards an end. I think of uh, August Wilson, the late great African-American playwright, and uh, his work. Um, his work in many ways is picking up on his experience from the 60s and from that earlier period where there's a lesson in, implied in the plays and the actors 
and directors look to get certain themes across through the work. It doesn't necessarily have to be didactic. It can still be in a work that's affecting in a variety of ways, but how that message resonates and how you take it out of the theater with you later is something that uh, I think is only possible potentially in that interchange uh, with the, the closeness of the audience to the performance. Um, it, it was uh, interesting. One of the plays I write about in the, the 60s was a play down in New Orleans uh, um, that was called the slave play. And at the end, the audience is, speaks of this idea of rise, rise, black men rise, 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 cut the ties. And the audience rose as one. And it was so powerful that they thought the audience was going to leave and riot in, in the theater after leaving. So that, that sense of power in the theater, the theater can produce something with the audience. Uh, the phrase that a sociologist, Victor Turner, called it uh, communitas, this feeling of oneness, a feeling of effervescence. There's sometimes that the feeling happens in the theater and it's magical and powerful. Um, so uh, the idea that art can teach us a lesson, that art can have a means of reaching audience, that arts can have a way of affecting your thinking and your being, that sense of touching uh, your emotions in ways that uh, produces something that unexpected or something produces a feeling that, as I said, you can carry with you out of the theater. They placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away, across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up. Inside he was... So how today does that happen? I think of something like Hamilton as being an example of uh, of a play that's had meanings in a variety of different ways that worked on a very practical level in terms of creating affecting music dance and but also at the same time getting us to think potentially differently about american history Alexander Hamilton My name is Alexander Hamilton And there's a million things I haven't done But just you wait, just you by showing actors uh, that are black and brown playing the uh, great men, white men, in terms of uh, American early history and uh, in 1776 and uh, Alexander Hamilton. So it happens, um, and the theater becomes a vehicle in many ways that, to do both delight and instruct. <laughs> exactly. And I love theater's particular combination of the live spontaneous moment combined with the moment of community mm -hmm. as the kind of special recipe mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is so powerfully behind mm -hmm. the kind of change it can affect. Absolutely. Yeah, um, and that, that sense of community is something uh, you find in terms of uh, theater and the audience. Uh, by that, I, I mean a standing ovation at a play uh, it says something about the work it also says something about you as audience. We were a really good audience, in, weren't we? I mean, you watch it mm. as a community in, in, in unique ways and uh, ways that uh, I, I think excite both of us still to, to this day, for sure. For sure. I was going to save this for later, but the segue is, is uh, kind of irresistible because you wrote and you just alluded a little bit to it, this beautiful piece in American theater that I read about August Wilson's address at TCG in, in 96. Um, the ground in which I stand. And I actually think there's some incredibly important issues and profoundly relevant to this moment that I would like to explore with you. And I wonder first if you could introduce the listeners a little bit to what that moment was and what August Wilson was trying to address in that particular speech. Yeah, it was a, a speech before the Theater Communications Group, TCG, and in 1996, and he was the keynote speaker. And um, he gave a speech that people weren't expecting. Um, some people, you know, really rallied behind it. Others were somewhat shocked at things he said. And he railed against the, it seemed like the theater establishment that he was in some ways a part of, or at least had embraced him. And he was looking for a place and place for black theater in particular. And by that, the Lord theaters, the regional theaters, 
there was only one black theater among the 70 some odd uh, regional theaters. So he was railing against that situation. He was calling on black artists to speak to the needs of particularly black people. And he was looking also at uh, an idea that we could call colorblind casting, which seemed like an, a, a good invention to get black actors and Asian actors and uh, Latino actors work. But what he felt it was doing was uh, denying, in a sense, uh, the power of black art and the expression of it. And so he called for the creation of new black theaters um, uh, and a new black theater movement. We And uh, so it was a manifesto, in a sense, for a cultural change in the theater. Um, and uh, opening some eyes, it was interesting that one of the people there was the Chicana playwright Sherry Moraga. And Sherry, right. um, she felt like every time the said black, she put Chicana and it worked for her. So it's it celebrated for her or uh, advocated the kind of change she wanted to see in the theater, particularly for as a Chicana feminist uh, queer uh, playwright. Um, and uh, uh, one of the spaces that I that responded to it, Henry Louis Gates, among other people, responded to it. So it wasn't um, just a, a case that he made this speech and people of color or black people rallied around. Some people questioned, you know, why he was uh, coming up with these statements or what he wanted to do. And I think one of the more interesting is about this idea of colorblind casting. And, uh, and he was not a fan of it. Well, I mean, he wasn't a fan of it because it reified the very white European hierarchy that he was trying to point out versus this point that you make about Hamilton, which is a very different way of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. And we talk about non-traditional casting. And non-traditional casting is not saying that we live in a colorblind world and every I'm just going to cast this white actor here or a black actor here or Asian actor here and it doesn't matter. It's saying it does matter. And what I'm specifically doing is trying to stay something through a play um, by casting a woman in this man's role that may be non-traditional, but is is uh, exactly what Hamilton is doing in terms of making you think differently, potentially, about the Founding Fathers. Wait for it. One of the points that you make in this article, and again, I was so struck by how it was so good, Harry, really. Uh, One of the points you you make is that August Wilson stood there simultaneously as an insider and as an outsider, Mm -hmm. right? As an insider, as part of a kind of established American theater, but simultaneously as an outsider, as a black man, as a black playwright, as somebody who's participating in or articulating the need for a black theater. And you make a comparison, I think, to the experience of maybe some of our students, too, what a student of color might feel on a campus. And today, I think it has really powerful ramifications of simultaneously being on the inside and on the outside and living in that tension. That's that's great. Thank you. I mean, I hadn't put it together in that way um, in terms of students on campus, but I think you're absolutely right. So the idea, and Wilson, as many of you, your listeners probably know, he went around the country preparing a play to come to Broadway. So he would have different performances at regional theaters. And wherever it was, he would talk about, and then this one quote was that he was at the Huntington in Boston. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm just here. I'm just, um, I'm paraphrasing now. I'm, I'm just here. I don't own this place. You know, I'm just here for the time being to do the show. Um, so that sense of really ownership or belonging. Now cut to today, and you're looking at, at students in college. We, as uh, administrators, used to believe that, uh, yeah, we'd accept students of color, and they have to acclimate, and uh, they have to conform to being at the college. What I think is more understood now, and students are forcing uh, or compelling us to think differently, is that, no, um, not to, they don't have to conform uh, totally to us, we have to think differently about how the uh, college, the university, the, the art school is is constructed to make it more adaptable or accepting of students of color. So um, I'll give you an example of what's happened um, in relation to that. Students are looking at names. Um, and I know I, I had good friends when I was at Berkeley at Bolt Hall School of Law. 
never gave a second thought about what the name Bolt was. I mean, that was just the school of law. Well, Bolt was incredibly anti-Asian uh, uh, and particularly Chinese, and so it's no longer Bolt Law. But that's something no. that's happened recently. Similarly, at Stanford, Sarah Mall is no longer Sarah Mall because uh, of his relation with missions and his treatment of Native Americans. And so we see this happening all over the country in institutions, Yale and Calhoun, Woodrow Wilson and, and at Princeton. So students are, are getting us to think differently about those environments and that legacy and how the colleges as, and universities have to change to the students to make them feel at home. You know, Wilson said these theaters weren't his home. Well, the students are saying we want to feel like this and be a part of this in a different way. You know, I don't want to beg the obvious, but the relationship here uh, with the point you were making earlier that just diversifying our student body could be more like colorblind casting yeah. Yeah. as opposed to color conscious theatrical presentation like Lin-Manuel Miranda does in Hamilton, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you see what mm -hmm. I'm saying. That, that gets folded into is more a part of the essence and the fabric of what the educational experience is and not simply imposing a sense of diversity over what is remains very limited and part of a, a very a certain hierarchical tradition of supremacy. I th yes. Can I quote you on that, this idea of colorblind and not traditional? <laughs> well, I, lear I, lear I learned it from you. <laughs> so, no, you're right. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of this now because we're seeing this uh, on a national level in so many ways. We've had a, a new president and a new president who spoke out about racial injustice in his campaign is trying to affect those things. I mean, uh, and talking in ways about race and ideas about systemic racism that uh, is, is, is plainly new for a politician to take that on. But what it's created is environment, which uh, colleges and universities are thinking differently. So I'm in the process uh, for our college of creating a race, uh, excuse me, an equity and justice uh, agenda. But if you, as I look around the country at small liberal arts colleges, there are many, or even locally, Whittier as a, a, a plan for racial injustice. Or across the country, uh, Grinnell and Oberlin and uh, also uh, Haverford are all sort of thinking in this way because uh, we've got to think differently. It's not enough, as you said, to just be diverse in terms of students. How do you really make something different happen within that, that environment? Well, great segue to your taking on of the leadership of Oxy and um, maybe to invite you a little bit to talk about the equity and justice agenda that you're setting at Oxy. Sure. What it's looking to do is to set up uh, uh, and to put in our minds certain actions that the college needs to take to be more effective at, and conducive to being a place where all students, regardless of whatever background, beliefs, um, ideology that they have, um, that they feel like they know they belong and that they can thrive within. It's conducive to creating the kind of environment that we want, not simply for the college, but for the world. And so how do you do that and what needs to be in place in order for students to have that kind of experience? But we want it to be something that not only is about our students, but also about speaking to our community and around. LA is such an interesting, vibrant, dynamic place. Um, I'm interested in the question of um, how not only can LA inform what we do at Occidental, but how can Occidental really impact on things happening in LA? So one of the things in the agenda we have to look like is the pipeline of students going from potentially inner city LA schools to a place like Occidental. How do we work with that? How do we uh, affect that that's mutually supportive and effective and gets uh, students who can make it and, and thrive in that environment? Um, but also looking at questions within that environment of what do we need to do as we've been talking about 
to make it a, a more effective teaching space, to make it a space where there's the kind of interchange that leads to a productive dialogue across difference. And that's one of the things that I uh, want to see in terms of the agenda as well. So the agenda is something that's going to play out over time. I mean, some things are, are things that, that students have been calling out at, at every school for a long time. Um, people want to see more um, diversity and more faculty of color. Uh, people want to see a curriculum that's also uh, responsive in ways um, and to uh, questions of difference of gender. And, and it's the simple fact is that students today are, are different in a variety of ways. And we not only have to respect that difference, we have to do things. Some things teach differently. Uh, I mentioned uh, faculty of color. Every school virtually in the country is looking for more faculty of color. And I mean, so one of the things we have to do is help that pipeline. And uh, so hopefully some students leaving um, Occidental in the next few years will want to continue that tradition and be professors. And how do we encourage that and help them in those ways as well? And so there's a series of things that we're looking to do within the agenda, but the major thing is culture change. Um, that's gonna be a, a change and, and uh, that is the kind of space where students want to come because they know that they'll feel as if they fit in there and that that they can have the kind of experience that they want in terms of college. I mean, that agenda is so wonderful. I wonder if you can talk about how you're getting there. I mean, I can see your sense of what the production ought to be. I'm interested in the rehearsals. I'm interested in what you're doing with your cast of faculty and staff and trustees and alumni and students and how you're engaging in a conversation so that you can tap the wisdom of your community as you move toward it. Yeah, and I love the analogy there. And if we go back to thinking about what a director does is they are looking to encourage the best work from these different communities. Um, part of that has to be that. Um, so it can't be a top-down hierarchical or it's not going to work. I know that too, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, working with different groups, uh, I'm speaking to the trustees um, shortly and they have a, a, a take on this because they're particularly interested in costs. I mean, they are the, in charge of the university lasting 30, 40, 50 years down the line. So how are we going to make this work within the parameters? So that's a different conversation. Um, also looking um, to uh, another, as you said, the constituency or members of this production, and that's the uh, faculty. Faculty... I have such a key role to play is uh, they are they are probably longer than anyone at a college um, and have a different relationship. So how we involve them in the process and they are critical. What are they going to teach to open space to incentivize um, unique possibilities for uh, classes that could happen there interdisciplinary ways or how do we encourage their best work and. I got to say, I, I feel really privileged to be at Oxy that uh, to have a faculty that's really kind of innovative and creating. So they created this um, arts immersion uh, that was for first year students who were remote in the fall, um, as uh, every school, as you know, in L.A. County had to be remote. And with the arts immersion, it was a class that um, taught arts practice, uh, but brought together theater people, brought together visual artists, brought together musicians in a way to teach this one class. And then at the end of the class, they had the possibility for an internship in L.A. with the L.A. artists. So that sense of connecting um, and encouraging um, the faculty to be creative has got to be part of this. But it's got to be linking this notion of academic excellence to issues of diversity, equity, and justice, that they're not mm -hmm. tangential. Um, and, and so that's a, 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 sh a shift in terms of how we uh, need to present it, but it's, it's a notion that all of the different constituents have to buy into. So that's the mm -hmm. process right now, getting that and letting us see that, uh, it, as I said before, this is something that can benefit the city of L.A. as well. Uh, or we can be an exemplar for other schools. So um, buying into the vision, um, but creating that vision, you know, mutually creating that vision has to be part of it as well. Do you talk about shared governance at Occidental? Do you use that term? Yeah, it was about to come up in the last few things I said, then I was staying. Yeah, shared governance uh, 
is something that we'll spend some time with as we go into thinking about this next budget, thinking about uh, the future, and um, uh, thinking about strategic planning. And essentially what it means is, uh, is the notion that each member of the community of the college or university has a role that they play. And they share in the, the mutually in this process of governance. And it also means that people got to stay in their lanes. And that sometimes gets hard because it's blurring um, across. And it's particularly at a, a liberal arts uh, college, it's small, that everybody is close. And everybody wants to have a, not only a perspective, they want to have an impact on the decision-making practice. So how we work that is, is critical. I, I started something this year called the, the College Cabinet, and it consists of a membership from leadership across the college, staff, faculty, students, um, and uh, at the next meeting coming up, we're going to spend some time talking about how each of those groups sees um, shared governance and their role within that. I mean, it's a conversation that's of great interest to me. My own experience at Art Center is really a, it's a kind of experiment that I try to create with mixed results, to be honest, uh, because I valued the community conversation as the essence of shared governance. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea was not so much a traditional academic role of, well, the faculty senate can make this decision and an executive can have the power to accept it or veto that decision. But it was more a way of, can we define shared governance as a conversation that informs the people who are responsible for making the decision and held accountable for implementing that decision. Mm -hmm. So that is not a decision made on high, it's a decision made in a respectful conversation. And uh, again, we've had mixed results and it's been a very difficult concept, I think, for the community to absorb. And I'm just interested in, in how Occidental might be wrestling with a similar kind of issue between sharing in governance, as you point out, and yet the issue of accountability and decision-making is very specifically assigned. Yeah. So I, I mean, we've had mixed results too, Lauren, and it, I think it's, it's, it's just tough. Um, and uh, what I've realized that coming into this role after being at a much different institution for 30 years, um, that uh, the president has a difficult role to play. I mean, because of that sense of accountability. Um, so one of the things that's got to be key, and I've made some errors in this and hopefully have learned from them, that uh, communication and that word transparency is important, that uh, trying to let people know what you're doing or um, figuring when to invite people in. When does the faculty really need to be engaged in something? When do students need to be engaged? How do you talk to the trustees? So it, it's, it's not something you solve. It's something that has to be ongoing and with each particular um, issue. Uh, so at the beginning of uh, the year, it was the issue of uh, would we go remote or not? Uh, eventually it was decided for us. But we decided July 15th that, uh, and I had just come into the role, that we were going to go remote. And while in some ways it's my decision and I'm accountable, it, it's a decision that certainly involved the trustees. The faculty, you know, had to teach the classes and were worried about their own health, you know, and, and they needed to be brought in. Students, they, the leadership of the student um, uh, senate sent us a letter wanting to be remote because they worried about the behavior of other students. So um, working with those con different constituencies is key, but uh, the accountability is also a factor. So as I said, I, I think with every situation, it's got to be reborn. So it's, 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 it's a complex, and uh, if you find someone who can help us both who's got it right, <laughs> it'd be great. <laughs> well, as you, know, as you were speaking, and, and, and again, you're, you're such a perfect person for me to explore this with. I mean, again, I am thinking about the theater, and I'm thinking about the a, a quote-unquote shared governance model in building a production. And because that actor does need to make an individual decision, individual choice, mm. but the choice is made in a context. The choice is made in context of, of, of a director, of d designers, of other actors that the individual is interacting with. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I wonder if we might go back to our, you know, 
the olden days and look at the theater itself as a as a key to this. I don't know. So look at the, the playing that out. Then um, how would that impact you, uh, you as director, thinking about the work of the actor and and uh, with that in mind? That it becomes a process of the making is what's key. It's not the emphasis on the structure or on who has executive uh, decision-making powers and who has academic powers and sort of dividing it up. Mm -hmm. It is much more a kind of a pulling together of a community to create something and to make it together in order to discover what it ultimately is going to be. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Uh, the, the making is key um, and that you can get people caught up in the, the shared journey of making it um, and that they see it experience. I mean, um, when I think of plays that have worked the best, they've been plays where the, you know, the cast had that kind of feeling. It's crazy. It doesn't right. happen every time. Um, right. Um, so if uh, generating that and so carrying it to this agenda, can um, the faculty take ownership of it and of the making of it? So the, 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 right. the question I'm going to ask them is, is not so much, you know, what do you want to correct in this agenda, but how do we achieve? How do we make it? How do we? How do we make yeah. it? Right. How do we get into the art of it in the creative process of it? Mm -hmm. So you entered your job, to switch gears for a minute, you entered your job in a pandemic. I mean, you only know your presidency at Occidental within a, the context of a pandemic, right? As, yes. And remote learning. Yeah. So talk to me about that experience. It's been profoundly <laughs> surreal. Um, so there are people who I uh, work with every day, but only know on Zoom. Wow. Yesterday, a few days ago, I had a meeting on campus because we were taking a tour, and the person said to me, um, obviously, we're social distanced and masked, but they said to me, this is the first time I've seen you in 3D, you know, because it, it, <laughs> so, so that was one of the just weird things about, uh, about the experience of, of this. Um, and it, uh, we don't have any students. Uh, well, we have very few students on campus, so it's very limited the sense of the experience on campus. And that's such a big part of our residential campus. So, or reaching out to alumni and seeing them, or uh, uh, having a variety of events, plays to go to at night. There isn't any. So right, it's right. so it, it's been it's been a challenge. Um, but the question that we keep asking is, how do you both survive the pandemic in a way that's um, positive, productive, effective, but also how do you continue to grow as a college in ways? Uh, we found ourselves um, certainly hit economically like the country and like other colleges by this thing. So we got to survive that, but we got to get in a position that uh, uh, for the future as well. And I imagine that the residential piece is huge for you, right? It's such an essential yeah. part of what a liberal arts education is all mm -hmm. about. I mean, the equivalent at Art Center is, you know, access to studios and labs and shops, et cetera, et cetera. That's an essential part, too, that students have had to be resilient and find other ways of going about their work. And we, the college has had to invent and be creative about ways in which we can serve students that way without risking their health and safety. It's just been a, a huge project and, uh, and an amazing mm -hmm. one. I'd like to say, you know, it's uh, the statement I think of the wisdom traditions that it's not so much what happens to us in life, but how we respond. And this has certainly been a moment of yeah. looking at that, yeah. that response, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah and, and uh, yeah. it's great to hear you talk about the creativity and resilience of students and faculty and staff yeah, that happened during this. Um, you know, and uh, there have been new organizations sprung up to, of uh, presidents, so presence in the LA and, and people come, you know, and, and having that shared moment just to <laughs> somebody else who can actually understand all that you're going through is a, of empathy right. is, is nice to have as well. Are you having conversations about, I mean, I can imagine that people miss and that's lost uh, at this moment, Occidental, but are you involved in conversations of what's been gained, what you've discovered, what might even have an influence in a post-pandemic Occidental. Sure, on um, on a, a practical level, in terms of just well, so many uh, you know classes taught a certain way. I mentioned the arts immersive, uh, or um, you know, high uh, class that are partially remote, you know, or take uh, use of technology. So there's that angle, you know, of of, of things being better. But then there's just uh, the sense of um, 
uh, I, I mentioned the, the presidents potentially reaching out and forming a new community. Um, there's different communities that have grown up that uh, are around them uh, and, and thinking of uh, ways of using those communities. Um, so I mentioned uh, the presidents again, but also uh, you can, I think, communities around art. Uh, what connections are we forging with things in LA? They be be the artists, being the art centers, right? So uh, partnerships, I think, got to be one of the important things. And the college, us figuring to that is one of the things that uh, will come out of this. I think. Well, it's a great opportunity for me to say I know that Oxy and, and Art Center have always had a good partnership in certain kinds of ways, but we're wide open to exploring yeah. how that can go deeper and how we can take these two communities and put them together for potentially fantastic results. It's it's happened in fits and starts mm -hmm. during my time at Art Center, but I would just love to see it grow. Uh, Me too. And uh, I think those kinds of partnerships are a big part of uh, the future of higher education. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and your emphasis on the LA community uh, can hopefully be realized in a different kind of way or in a even a richer kind of way through these kinds of partnerships too. I, I totally agree. So I, I look forward mm -hmm. to more conversations and, you know, on Zoom. <laughs> on Zoom, indeed. Yeah. Well, Harry, thank you so much for your time and thanks for your thoughtfulness. As I say, I'm so excited that you are, uh, you're in the community and that you and I have a chance to reconnect and not be two ships passing in the San Francisco Bay, but really can form a bond and partnership. And I, I look forward to that. Thank you. I'm, I'm just so, so delighted that you're that you're here and really grateful to you for taking the time to talk. The to feeling you. is mutual. I appreciate it. Thank you. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to thank our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more of it, please take the time to review and give us a star rating in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.